0: As we've thought about our move, um, we've been using this time as uh, a staff and a group of elders to also explore the mind of Christ related, not just to where he wants us to go, you know, the ground that he's preparing for us right now, the sacred geography that he's calling us to. That's really important. Uh, We believe place matters and we want to be placemakers. But we're also exploring the mind of Christ as it relates to what mission is he sending us with? Why are we going to this ground? What is it he wants us to do there? And we have this growing sense of call and enthusiasm around the idea of being agents of healing for those struggling with addiction. Uh, this is something you're going to hear us talk a lot about uh, in, the coming, in the coming days, in the coming months. Um, because we feel that we're being called into alleviation for the addicted. Um, and this is, this is a tremendous need, especially if you know how addiction manifests itself. Um, I believe an addict stands before you right now. I believe there are many addicts sitting in this room right now. And I think that addiction is a menacing thing that is shackling our neighborhoods. And I'll be really honest, friends, this feels like an overwhelming and a daunting task, right? Like, going head-on into the problem of addiction. It, like, it feels like it outpaces my skill set so dramatically. You might feel like that, too. And with all issues that feel this enormous, and we, as we grapple with the enormity of deep-rooted issues, it can feel like we just simply don't know where to start. Um, It's understandable to feel like this. Uh, And so here's what I want for us today. Um, Addictions in Everest, we know that. So let's view today as our first collective step up Everest. And with that, let's go into Mark 7. Now hear a reading from the word. Now the Pharisees and some of the experts in the law who came from Jerusalem gathered around him. And they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate their bread with unclean hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they perform a ritual washing, holding fast to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. They hold fast to many other traditions, the washing of cups, pots, kettles, and dining couches. The Pharisees and the experts in the law asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with unwashed hands? And he said to them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Having no regard for the command of God, you hold fast to human tradition. He also said to them, You neatly reject the commandment of God in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever insults his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever help you would have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift for God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like this. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, "'Listen to me, everyone, and understand "'there is nothing outside of a person "'that can defile him by going into him. "'Rather, it is what comes out of a person "'that defiles him.'" Now, when Jesus had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, "'Are you so foolish? "'Don't you understand that whatever goes into a person "'from outside cannot defile him? "'For it does not enter his heart.'" but his stomach, and then goes out into the sewer. This this means all foods are clean. He said, what comes out of a person defiles him, for from within, out of the human heart, comes evil ideas, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, evil deceit, debauchery, envy, slander, pride, and folly. All these evils come from within and defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, right now, in this moment of silence, we choose to listen to your spirit. Speak to us about your word. have your way in the preaching of the word amen okay so initial thoughts uh you may be wondering where addiction is in this story uh or how this particular story is to inform our perception of addictive behavior or in general and to that i say you're not crazy um that's a very understandable thought but just stay with me as we try to to understand this narrative a bit First of all, it has to be said that this this particular kind of scene seems all too familiar by this point in Mark, right? Like where the Pharisees approach Jesus, believing themselves to hold the moral high ground, and he then responds in such a way that corrects their misconception, uh, teaches intentionally all those within earshot, and in doing so, uh, reshapes the narrative of what they were trying to do. I mean, all of Mark 2 and 3 were just stories, one after another, exactly like this. We called them the four whys, if you remember. Why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? Why aren't you fasting in these ways? Etc. And so yet again, we have this kind of scene, where the Pharisees approach Jesus and ask yet another question, not intended to learn anything new, but intended to expose him as a fraud And this question is, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with unwashed hands? Which was a not-so-veiled way of uh, insisting, Mark put it in as an editorial for us, that you and your disciples have intentionally defiled yourselves you've become ritually unclean and the implications of this question being why why are you doing this is to say you can't belong to this community if you live like this that's simply out of bounds we won't have it and then to Jesus we don't take you seriously as a so-called teacher because routinely you break tradition and you frustrate the law So posturing yourself as someone that we should listen to is dumb. We're not going to do it. What's interesting is Jesus lets their question hang for a little bit. He doesn't immediately address it specifically. Rather, he first opts to expose how they themselves are perpetual lawbreakers. Um, Apparently they were using this traditional loophole that they created uh, called Corbin. Corbin, I love you. Sorry. Um, which just meant that it was something set aside for God, A- and meaning that you could essentially claim your resources as these, hey, these are, these are Corbin. Like, you, you can't have these. These are set aside for God. So, where I would normally be expected to share these with others, namely my parents in their old age, um, sorry, my hands are tied. I can't, give you anything. Um, And they were, they were abusing this idea of setting possessions aside for God to then explicitly not take care of those they required to take care of. And so he's using this as an example just to introduce to them the idea that tradition can be so easily corrupted. Tradition is so often corrupted. And this pivots him then back to their original question but it's also really interesting who he addresses when he pivots back to answer the first question. He doesn't talk directly to the Pharisees anymore. That's not who he wants for him to hear. He's already spoken to them, but rather he calls the whole crowd to attention and says, listen to me, everyone, and understand. Calls everyone with an earshot to attention who will listen. There is nothing outside of a person that could defile him by going into him rather it is what comes out of a person that defiles him. It is not food, but the evil that comes from one's heart that is truly defiling. And then he goes off with his apostles, and the text says one of them asks, like, how can this be true? Like, explain your parable to us. And he reiterates that he was indeed being literal, and that's our story. And again, how does this relate in the least to addictive behavior well to get to that we need to see peter in this story now we've spent a lot of time with peter uh, during our study uh, through mark we've even had two one-man shows costume and all uh, demonstrating the life and perspective of peter for us and yet This scene, which ironically doesn't say the name of Peter, I believe stands as the most relatable look into his life that we've encountered yet. This scene was an important start of something for Peter. Think about this. This story is not in Luke's gospel account. This story is not in John's gospel account. But here it is in Mark. It was deemed important enough a scene to include. And you have to remember that even though this is the gospel account according to Mark, uh, Peter was his source. So it was Peter who identified this as a necessary story to include in this gospel account. In fact, the only other gospel that tells us this story is the gospel according to Matthew, in which he identifies by name that it was Peter who took Jesus off privately and said, what, what, what are you talking about? What does this mean? He was the one who asked, explain this parable to us. Biblical scholars agree this wasn't a parable. Peter just couldn't envision a world where what Jesus was saying was actually true. It was so deeply problematic for Peter, he rationalized it to himself by thinking he couldn't possibly be speaking literally. He couldn't be. This has to be figurative only. It, it couldn't be anything more than a parable. Again, this was the start of Peter holding on to something that he couldn't seem to shake loose for most of his ministry. See how this issue progresses for Peter, this single issue. It's a, it's a really fascinating timeline, and to kind of see other snippets, we're going to have to move beyond just the restraints of Mark 7 today. But again, that's where, that's where everything starts. You know, in Mark 7, he's taught that you can't be defiled or declared unclean by what you eat, only what comes from your heart. That's step one. And then in Acts 10... There's this scene with Peter where he's told, All food is clean to eat, which he then immediately rejects, even after hearing these words spoken directly from Jesus. And he rejects it in Acts 10, saying, No, I have never once defiled myself by eating what's unclean. And I think the language is really interesting in saying how he's rejected that. I have never once defiled myself. Remember, it was the Pharisees who accused them of becoming defiled in the way they ate. And Acts 10 tells us that three times in a row, he's told this message, get up, eat, get up, eat. And he rejects it every time. In fact, the text even tells us, even after it was stated so plainly, three times, he puzzled over what this could possibly mean. Again, there was no space inside his paradigm for this to be true. But then kind of shook out of himself, Acts 11 shows us how he finally responds. And he resolved to believe that neither food nor association with Gentiles could defile him. And so the text says, he visited and ate with uncircumcised men. Like, way to go. You got it. But then Galatians 2, which was written later, says this. About Peter he used to eat with Gentiles but when they meaning other Jews arrived he began to draw back and separate himself because he was afraid we see a little bit of a Peter relapse and you might think okay big deal Right? Like, this hardly seems like a matter of serious consequence. When we think of addiction, we tend to immediately think of substance abuse or some kind of sexual attachment. Like, this just seems like a very minor ideological hang-up, if you could even characterize it as that. But that, my friends, is the trap of addiction. Addictions can be so seemingly insignificant that we can become so easily convinced that they're not even there. Uh, the author Cornelius Planninga talks about addictions like they're parasites, like they start and they're so minuscule in scope and influence. But that's just how they start, when they're allowed to exist, when they're allowed to feed on their hosts. They grow and they become far more potent and destructive. Um, Gerald May, who is a psychiatrist and author, uh, identified five true marks of addiction for us. And I think they're really important. Um, We'll have the slides up. We'll go through them one at a time. Uh, The first is the idea of, of tolerance or lack thereof to give something up i just i can't give it up like i i just can't simple as that withdraw um and that's pushback when the thing we're addicted to is either threatened in some way uh, when someone or something encroaches into unsafe territory towards your addiction or it's just taken away completely the next sign of addiction is self-deception And that's this kind of internal justification that we do. These mental gymnastics to rationalize that the thing we're addicted to is actually, it's a pretty good thing. Like, I'm better off because I have this in my life. The next sign is the loss of willpower. And that's when you, you simply can't quit. This comes as a surprise to many. This is usually where the parasite addiction first reveals itself when you find that you can't stop you relapse when you decide that maybe i don't want this in my life you backslide and no amount of resolve seems to do the trick and then the last sign of is a distortion of attention our addiction uses up our energy, and it sucks us into obsessions and compulsions, which leaves less and less energy for other people and other pursuits. And in this scene, I think Peter offers us a really interesting case study in how all of these things can be true in someone's life, and they go entirely missed or downplayed. In fact, just, just again, as a case study, mapping Peter's story onto, you can put the five uh, signs back up, Lindsay, mapping Peter's story onto these things. You know, we we first saw he, he couldn't give up his idea, and then when the idea was threatened, he had to explain it away in some way. Matthew 15, again, tell me about this parable, right? Like, it, it, we're, we're only speaking figuratively, right? Like, Please, ensure me, we're only speaking figuratively. Acts 10 shows us how he self-deceived. He rationalized why holding on to this belief was a good thing. No, I've never once defiled myself, and I never will. I'm doing it right. Loss of willpower is very much on display in Galatians 2. He relapsed because of complicated social pressure that came into his life. And then his distortion of attention, actually, in a weird moment of clarity, we find in Acts 15, when Peter is at the Jerusalem council and he gets up and starts talking about the law and says, friends, this is, this is a burden that neither we nor our ancestors could hope to carry. We are strapped for energy. Peter was consumed by a compulsive need evidenced all through the New Testament. And as small as it might seem, this tells us there's virtually nothing that we can't be addicted to. Addiction uses up our capacity to love one another. It uses up our capacity to return love to God because it presents itself as a new ultimate pursuit in our life. Or to say in another way, and to use spiritual language, this is the truest sense of an idol. And yes, now it's good to know this. Like, I'm glad we're starting to educate each other, but I don't want us to leave this place feeling even more overwhelmed, or God forbid, guilty, or like we're incapable of beginning to move in the right direction together. Remember, this is our first Step in helping each other and leaning into this call that we feel God's placing on our church. So what do we need to know? If we are going to do anything about the epidemic of addiction in our neighborhoods, if Littleton Christian Church is going to be an agent of healing in that direction, we need to first commit to being what's called a sobriety community. Or to say it another way, just a committed support structure for addicts. What exactly does this mean? Let's think of Peter again. He was in Jesus' inner circle, right? He told Jesus with intensity, I will follow you anywhere. Like, I will stay close to you. I want to remain on the inside of this thing that you've generated. And now... He hears the Pharisee saying to him, you can't be a part of this spiritual community if you live like this. You will be placed on the outside of community if you continue this behavior. And then Galatian tells us he relapsed due primarily to complicated social pressure, the idea of losing his place within a community. And I think it's, it's sad and it's true and it's been really weighing on my heart a lot uh, lately that whether it's subconscious or not, the church kind of presents itself as this place where you first behave and then you're invited to belong. The Pharisees were making clear that there was no room for anyone in their community who didn't already adequately behave and that's why Jesus didn't just respond to them. In fact, that's why he didn't respond to them. It's really important. Because everyone around would have been hearing the same thing. You can't belong to this spiritual community unless you behave the way that we tell you to behave. And Jesus stands up and addresses everyone else, not just his accusers. He says, listen to me, everyone, hear me. And then he dismantles the Pharisees' way of thinking. Community support around addiction, which replaces social and internal pressure, is the most effective tool in recovery. Please hear this. This is going to be the most important thing I'll say today. If we, if we, Littleton Christian Church, is going to do anything about addiction in ourselves and our neighborhood, we have to be a community of refuge and patience And this might hit you like far too simplistic a starting place for such a complex problem, but there's actual data around how this is so effective. Like Pura Vita Recovery, which is a rehab group in Spokane, Washington, insists that the best way out of addiction and the most reliable way of preventing relapse is in helping someone quote, find their tribe getting people connected to a community of sobriety. LCC can be that. And wherever it is that God's moving us, LCC can be the tribe for addicts. In fact, Pura Vida Recovery Group preaches over and over again, above most things, keep the tribe intact. Like we have to keep the tribe intact. And that is a charge that goes both ways, first to those struggling with addiction. Like don't remove yourself from this community. Don't remove yourself from this support structure. But I think it's even more words for everyone else who makes up the community. Because being in community with someone who's addicted is incredibly difficult. It costs a lot. It's painful takes patience, long-suffering, because the reality is that 60% of addicts will relapse at least once. Uh, Hafsa Ahmad, who is a counselor and a mental health advocate, said the most common experience for someone after they've relapsed is to first look around and notice who's abandoned them. It was like the most heartbreaking thing that I encountered this week. The first thing that someone does after relapse isn't just heap shame on themselves, but look around and see who's still with them and who's abandoned them. And they say when they're abandoned post-relapse, that is the most potent thing that traps them even further in their addiction and traps them even further in their relapse. Littleton Christian, if we don't take seriously our role in long-suffering with those who are addicted, we can actually become a part of what traps them even further in their addiction. We have to know that. This is a call into willful suffering to endure with those hurting, and this is our first step up this Everest is a commitment to welcome those yet who don't behave, but even more so to stick around when they don't get it right, to stick around during relapse, to banish the temptation, to give in our frustrations towards those people. And if you've ever dealt with addicts or if you've ever dealt with addiction in yourself, which again, I think is all of us, we know how deeply frustrating and irritating it is, and you want to quit on them, you want to quit on yourself. But have we ever thought that hospitality and patience could be a key factor, a key role that this church plays in overcoming addiction in our little community and in the places that we call home? I've always believed that one of the greatest assets of this church is our ability to be hospitable. And I think that's connected with the call we're sensing right now, that God is leveraging that gift that this church has to bring healing in this much-needed way. There's another really, really cool example of this being true. Um, It's just up in Boulder. There's a sobriety community called Phoenix Multisport. Um... It's a, it's a club of people who simply use hiking, climbing, biking, racing, these kind of things, as a way to be together. It's an excuse to get together and to reroute their compulsions into something healthy and something life-giving. And the people who make a difference at Phoenix Multisport, I think this is one of the coolest things about their model. Um, their most influential members aren't licensed counselors. They're not trained professionals. Usually we reserve this kind of problem for master-carrying minds because this feels like such a big problem. But at Phoenix Multisport, the people who make the biggest difference, they call peer professionals because they're just recovering addicts themselves. We're a group of recovering addicts. Each one of us can be peer professionals. And here what, here's what's really lovely when that kind of posture is characteristic of a place. It's really hard to say, tie down by stigma and shame when the people around you are recovering as well and are proud of their recovery. I mean, listen to this. At Phoenix Multisport, more than 75% of the people who get involved have stayed sober. Guys, they hike together that's it. They hike together, and more than 75% of the people who have joined that sobriety community have stayed sober. And of the 25% who relapsed, which is already so much smaller than the normal average, 90% said that they would come back without fear of shame, but knew that they would be embraced as they gave it another try. 91% said that their mental health improved 93 percent said their physical health improved and then another 91 percent said their overall quality of life improved because these are incredible numbers tackling what we see as this Everest of a problem because they hiked together is that crazy to anyone else but me and this is the kind of community LCC can commit to being Not one that says, get it right, then come. Not one that says, behave, then belong. Not one that says, after you've learned it once, do it right every time. But rather one that is characterized by the old, kind of corny adage, that I like it so much, that Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Like that is the language of the peer professional. Hey kids, come on in. Find your parents. And if we hear anything from the last words of Jesus that he spoke to the Pharisees, to those listening, and then directly to Peter, it's that we are all, each of us, unworthy of participation in the kingdom by ourselves. We have no cause to say we, belo- we can belong to this community on our own merits. In fact, Jesus does identify in our text the wickedness that is characteristic of our heart, and it's a, it's a scathing list. And yet he stayed with us, chronic relapsers though we may be. He invited these people to his table. He provided these people with a meal. Uh, there's a song by Leland, we do it here every now and again. Um, it has a line that I'm particularly fond of where it says that we were seated where we don't belong. Like such a powerful idea that we were given a place at the table and we didn't belong there. But he knew inside that close proximity Is where he could heal us and so we first receive these unearned gifts and then we reflect christ by extending them to others let's pray together jesus you have called each of us while we were addicted You've called each of us while we were enemies. You called each of us before we behave. You called each of us before we knew. Empower us to extend that same kind of endurance and long-suffering and patience to others. Lord, we're scared. This feels big. We want to be used by you. Show us. It's your name I pray. Amen.